following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Father, we do desire to please you in every way. We thank you for today, a day we're to remember the unborn, and or we do want to pray for avenues and uh, Abort73.com and uh, many other ministries we're associated with who, uh, Lord, are seeking to preserve life and seeking to proclaim the gospel, Lord, in situations that are very difficult for many. I pray, God, that you would bless avenues, that you would um, continue to bring them more uh, to come alongside and help and volunteer. And Lord, you use that ministry to show the love and care and compassion of Christ. And Father, too, uh, Pray, God, that as we look to your word in Hosea this morning, that your love that we have been singing about would become all the more, Lord, filled in our hearts, that we would better understand it and know it and respond to it in a manner that would please you. And thank you, Lord, for your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, we will be in Hosea uh, this morning. and, And having... In this book, you know, when I read it and in the last few weeks just studying it, uh, my thoughts are often gone back to a man um, I once knew. His name was Bob. I knew him when I was a young believer. He was in his 20s. He was married. He had his own car detailing business. And and Bob was one of those people that just had this infectious love for Christ. He always had a smile on his face and just was a constant encouragement to love Jesus. Well, he lived pretty frugally. Uh, didn't appear to have a lot. And when I thought it was because he just didn't make that much money, I found out later that he was actually saving for a trip to Europe, to go to Europe. And assuming that uh, he meant it to be for a nice vacation there with his wife, I told him when I found out about it, hey, Bob, that sounds like a lot of fun. And then he looked at me and he said, I'm not going to Europe for a vacation. I'm going to Europe to get back my wife. You see, Bob's wife uh, had been unfaithful to him more than once and had recently run off with a guy to live in Europe. And despite Bob's many pleas for her to come back, she refused. And rather than just give up, uh, rather than divorce her, which he had biblical grounds to do, rather than become bitter and angry and vengeful, Bob chose to win her back. And so he was not saving money just to get a plane ticket to go over there. He was saving up intending to live there if he had to in order to win back his wife. Uh, After about a year of him saving, uh, one night I asked him, I said, Bob, how do you keep going? I mean, what what motivates you? Do do you know even if you show up there, she's even going to talk to you? She's not talking to you now. How do you continue to go without giving up? And that's when Bob looked at me and he simply said this. He said, Tim, she's my wife. I made a promise to her. You know, it took Bob about two years, but he saved up enough money, and one day he was gone. And you know, that man showed me more about love and forgiveness than just about anybody I have ever met. Bob taught me about commitment to marriage. He taught me about sacrificial love, not through a message, not through a a book study, but through his own life. You know, I thank the Lord that God brought that modern-day Hosea into my life, even if it was for but a brief time. Because in his life, he showed me in in a small way, just as Hosea does, in a very small way, the profound love of God. We see that in Hosea. And as we look to Hosea, you know, the book begins like some reality show, really. We're thrust into his home and this marriage that's falling apart, um, uh, married to an immoral woman, having children, some aren't his. They have these names that symbolize God's judgment, consequences for their sin. And then as chapter 2 unfolds, we see that God intended to use Hosea's life to show us just how treacherous sin is, how much of a betrayal it is to him. And so he chose the most sensitive, the most provocative, really, of analogies in order to help us understand that message. That's what we focused on last week. The degree of grief and sorrow that our, grief, our sin brings to God. God wanted us to see 
wanted us to see not only the wickedness of our sin and its disobedience to a holy God, but also the betrayal that that sin is to a loving God. Our sin is like a spouse's betrayal. And chapter 2 not only describes the treachery of Israel's sin, but as we saw last week, God's response to it. In fact, verses 2 through 23 are really one message delivered by Hosea, and it's a message that's framed by these three therefores. Last week we looked at two of them. Verse 6, the first therefore, God says, Therefore I I will build up or hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her. Speaking of how God would, would prevent Israel from continuing to pursue her idolatry probably through exile. Verse 9, the second, therefore, we see, he says, I will therefore take back my grain at harvest time, my new wine in its season. These were things that the people were attributing to the false god Baal. And so God says, I'm going to withhold them from you to show you they don't come from Baal's hand, but from mine. So the theme up to the point we stopped last week in verse 13 was a theme of judgment of Israel's harlotry and God's consequences for that harlotry. God summarizes this in 2.13 when he says, I will punish her for the days of the Baals when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. Again, last week we covered the first two. Therefore, this week we're going to look at the third one in verse 14. And verse 14 begins with the words, Therefore, behold... And in the Old Testament, when those two words are put together, what follows was usually not a good thing. Almost always they contain some form of judgment that God was going to bring, and that would make sense. We've been seeing that in this passage, and so we would expect verse 14 will give yet another consequence for Israel's idolatry and sin against God. But as we move beyond those first two words in verse 14, we'll find something even more shocking than what we've already seen in Hosea. So if you could please stand as I read, beginning in Hosea chapter 2, verse 14, in honor of God's Word. Here God's speaking through Hosea says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness, and speak kindly to her. Then I will give her her vineyards from there, and the valley of Accor is a door of hope, and she will sing there as in the days of her youth as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will no longer call me Ishi, and will no lo- you will call me Ishi, and will no longer call me Baali. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, so that they will be mentioned by their names no more. In that day I will also make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land, and will make them lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. And it will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain, to the new wine and to the oil. And they will respond to Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Thank you. You may be seated. So those first two words, therefore, behold. And then God even adds the first personal pronoun, I, to emphasize this idea. Therefore, because of all this, Behold, take note, listen, I will. And then following that, we see several declarations of God and how he would respond. In fact, did you catch all of the I wills here in these 10 verses? I will allure. I will speak kindly. I will give. I will remove. I will make a covenant. I will abolish. I will make them lie down. I will betroth. I will respond. I will sow. I will have compassion. I will say. God's pretty active here. Verses 2 to 13 also contained a number of I wills. But do you see a difference here between the I wills of these verses and those from the first half of chapter 2? It's an amazing turnaround. We were poised to expect this third therefore God was really going to unload the truck on him. That he was really going to describe further consequences. But instead, God does a complete 180 here, doesn't he? Instead of proclaiming judgment and consequences, what is it that God's message is here in the last half of this chapter? It's one of restoration. 
It's one of reconciliation. And we've seen these restoration passages before. Amos chapter 9. Amos ends his book with a restoration passage to Israel. Uh, Joel 3, we saw it there as well. Obadiah talks about the restoration of Israel. But there's something different in this restoration passage from Hosea. All of them promise God restoring Israel, bringing them back in the land and, and providing them richly and blessing them. But did you see it? What was the tone here in this chapter, in these verses that we read? Rather than God saying to Israel, okay, you blew it. There will be consequences for what you've done, but one day I'm going to reverse them. Rather than God saying, hopefully you get the point now from these consequences and start to obey. Rather than saying and declaring his forgiveness and that he would keep his promise to restore them. How did God describe his restoration here? Did he describe it as a, as a, a master coming in to establish his rule? Did you catch all those terms that he used? Several terms of affection here, right? Give them back. Give someone back to me right now. What are some terms of affection we see here in this passage? I will allure. I will speak kindly. Call me my husband. I heard one. What's one repeated three times in verse 19 and 20? Betrothed. Betrothed. That's a marital term. If you look at the beginning of verse 14... The shocking, uh, the startling words as again, as a judgment is expected. Instead, God says, I will allure. I will woo you back to me. God said he would bring her into a wilderness, not in exile. But he's reminding them of that time in the Exodus when he brought them into the wilderness as they uh, were freed from the land and they were singing and there was rejoicing. God says, I'm going to take you back to that day. Verse 14 at the end, he says, he would speak kindly, which was a, actually a Hebrew idiom that is literally he would speak to her heart. In fact, uh, if you're keeping up with your reading, we saw this same very phrase in Genesis chapter 50. Where remember Joseph's brothers, after Joseph's father died, they were kind of afraid, right? They were worried about what Joseph was going to do. Now that dad's gone, uh, Joseph might take his vengeance on us. Remember, they came to him and they you know, said, Dad told you not to do anything to us. And then Joseph, it says, see, no, 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 I understand. I'm not angry. I forgive you. What you meant for evil, God used for good. And it says in Genesis 50, 21, Joseph comforted them and spoke to their hearts. Or in the case of, remember, Ruth and her care for her mother-in-law, Naomi. And Boaz saw the sacrifice and commitment that Ruth had for Naomi. And he praised her for that. And then Ruth said to Boaz that he had spoken to her heart. It's this idea of comfort, of encouragement, of care, compassion. God speaks to their heart further in verse 15, promising to restore the vineyards he had destroyed in verse 12. And he says that the valley of Accor, Accor is a word that means trouble, he would turn into and become a valley of hope or a door of hope. It reminds us of the time, uh, uh, Accor is a word that comes from Achan. Remember, there's a man named Achan who had taken from the spoil from Jericho and he had brought consequences upon Israel as a result. They lost their next battle. And when it was found out, Achan was the one who had taken it. Uh, they took him into a place called the Valley of Accor, the Valley of Trouble. And they had stoned he and his family to death. But as a result of that, when the sin was purged from the people, they began then to enter victoriously into the land. So through the Valley of Trouble, they had seen a door of hope. And God says that will be the case for you. God's tender words continue in verse 16 where he says, you will call me Ishi and no longer Baali. Now Baal and Ish are both words that can be translated husband. Ish is the more common one and it has the connotation of a permanence, of a companionship. It was used in Genesis 2.23. Baal though has more of the connotation, its root meaning is Lord, Master. It's a connotation of rule of authority so niv actually translates it more you will call me my husband you will no longer call me my master and apparently it, it seems that the israelites had been you remember we talked about last week these gods baal there was a, a chief cosmic god baal who was a fertility god and there were also these regional baals that they were worshiping and apparently god was thrown into the mix with them and they were referring to him as one of the Baals. And God said, no more. Call me, don't call me some distant, remote God. 
that doesn't even exist, call me my husband. Quite a difference there. Verses 18 to 20, God promises to protect Israel. There would be peace within the creation. Israel would be secure from any enemy. And notice here, how does he represent himself in providing that protection? As a warrior? As a big brother? As some mighty king? How does God represent himself to the people here in protecting them? As a... See it there, right? Three times he repeats a certain word. As a husband. I will betroth you to me forever. I'll betroth you to me. I will betroth you to me. God's making a point here. And betrothal was more than simply asking to be married. In that culture, it was really a vow that was as binding as marriage. We see that with Mary and Joseph, that they were betrothed, but they were considered husband and wife. And betrothal involved a dowry. Here the dowry was God's own character. He says, I will betroth you in righteousness and compassion and justice and faithfulness. These attributes describe things that were all lacking in Israel. And this, these attributes describe not only the manner of the betrothal, but also what God would do within the betrothed. That He would provide them these things. These are all necessary for God's people to be able to keep their vow to God. They need to be righteous and faithful, right? And unless God would do that work in their hearts, they would not be able to keep their vows. Notice the last line of verse 20. And then you will know the Lord. Then you will have a relationship with me, he says. Verses 21 and 22. God is the caring husband who will provide for all the needs of his betrothed as expressed in grain, new wine, and oil. Those are simply terms that are meant to indicate or communicate any needs that there are would be taken care of. Then notice at the end of verse 22, and also in verse 23, we're back to what was brought up in the very first chapter. We're back to the names that were given to the children, Jezreel and Lo-Ruhamah, which is no compassion, not pitied, and Lo-Ami, not my people. And God returns back to them, and here in the restoration declares a complete reversal of the judgment that He had declared in chapter 1. In fact, he says they will respond to Jezreel. Jezreel sounds very similar to Israel. There's a play on words here. And the root meaning of Jezreel is God sows, God plants. Back in chapter 1, he was describing that he would sow judgment, referencing the time when Jehu brought judgment upon the house of Ahab. But here he says he will plant, he will sow restoration. Rather than planting judgment, he would plant Israel in the land and provide for her. In verse 23, we see he will no longer withhold his compassion, but he says, I will have compassion. Those who were formerly not my people, God says, will be my people. You know, these are final affirmations of a merciful God promising not just to forgive, not just to restore them to the land, not just to show mercy and kindness, not just to give protection. These are a declaration of a God who is offering an intimate relationship with himself. Notice how verse 23 ends. It's almost like wedding vows being exchanged where he says, you are my people, declares the Lord. The people, the bride replies, you are my God. Well, that's a kind of a quick summary of those 10 verses I wanted to look at. There's a couple of observations I think are important to see from these as a whole. There's a lot of other things we could go through here, but there are two things that I really want us to take away from this text. The first one, the first observation, if you could go back to Jeremiah 31 for a moment, that's where we'll see uh, the first observation. This chapter contains God's promise of the new covenant. Uh, It should be becoming familiar to us as we continue on in our series in the Minor Prophets, because that's a key text that's really connected to many of the prophets. And as I read in verses 31 to 34 of this promise of the new covenant, I want you to see if there's anything here in the declaration of this new covenant that sounds a little bit like what we just read in Hosea. I'll be beginning in Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Verse 32, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. 
But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Do you catch any similar words here, similar ideas? Both of these are promises, both in Hosea 2 and in Jeremiah. Both of them are promises specifically made to ethnic Israel. And both of these promises are indicated to be yet future. Jeremiah says here, behold, days are coming. Hosea repeats several times in that day. And notice here too, in Jeremiah 32, God referred to himself as, I was a husband to them. As in Hosea, where he says, call me my husband. Jeremiah 31, 34, he says in the new covenant, I will write my law on their heart. Which is really the same idea expressed in Hosea when he talks about God, that he would betroth them, betroth them to himself in righteousness and faithfulness, compassion, that their hearts would be transformed. God says in Jeremiah that his people would know him. It's the same thing he says in Hosea 2.20. Then you will know the Lord. And notice also in verse 33, where God says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. It's almost exactly what he says at the end of, Verse 23 in Hosea 2, you are my people and the people say, you are my God. So what's the point of this? It's to show that Hosea 2 is chock full of new covenant language. There's a connection between these passages. In Hosea 2, God is speaking of more than a physical restoration, though that is a part. He's speaking of a spiritual restoration, a transformation, a change, a conversion of the heart. To move toward an intimate relationship with God. A relationship that the people had betrayed in following other gods and pursuing their own sins. Be a regeneration like the new covenant where there would now be genuine fellowship and loyalty and love and relationship between God and His people. But for that true fidelity to be in God's people, only a change of heart can bring that about. A change of heart as promised in the new covenant. Only if God would betroth in righteousness and faithfulness and compassion and loving kindness could it be sustained. Calvin said of this passage in Hosea, Except God then recreates us a new people to himself, there is no more stability in the covenant he makes now with us than in the old which he made formerly with the fathers under the law. What Calvin is saying there is simply that without a work of God in the heart, we would be no more faithful than before. The people of Israel be no more faithful than under the law, unless there's a change in their heart. That's exactly what Jesus talked about in John 3, where he said there needed to be a rebirth, a transformation. He said in John 3, 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He's speaking of radical transformation there. Question I have to you, are you born again? I'm not asking if you've cleaned up your life. I'm not asking you if you feel bad about your sin. I'm not asking you if you read the Bible or pray or attend church. I'm not even asking you if you believe Jesus is the Son of God and rose from the dead and died on a cross. I'm asking you, are you born again? Has your heart been changed and transformed by the power of the Spirit? Do you love Christ? Do you desire to worship Him? Have you been changed? Again, that rebirth, that being born again, comes about by confessing your sin genuinely to Christ and seeking His forgiveness. It comes by truly desiring to turn from that sin and to follow Jesus. That rebirth comes by the power of the Spirit, not through your own effort or work or something you have to do to make it up to God. It is something God does in you as you genuinely Beg Him to change you, to transform you, confessing your sins to Him. That's why Jesus died upon the cross, so that He could pay for sin, so that He could pay for your sin as you confess it. Brother Kempis mentioned what Jesus said later in John chapter 3, that whoever believes in Him, whoever trusts in Him, would have eternal life. And that eternal life is more than just living forever. That eternal life is really describing an intimate relationship and fellowship with Christ with the Father, 
with the Spirit. That's exactly what we see in Hosea. That it was an intimate relationship being described. And that takes us to a second observation in this passage in Hosea. Because in addition to the new covenant language that we see here in Hosea 2, there's also another kind of language that God gives through the prophet Hosea. It is a language of relationship. Really a language of romantic love. I will allure you, he says. I will speak kindly to you. Call me my husband. I will betroth you. I will betroth you to me. I will betroth you to me. I mean, these terms are expressions of God wooing His people as a young man with a young woman. These are tender expressions, even romantic expressions that uh, should probably make us feel a little bit uneasy, a little bit uncomfortable. God's using these, this terminology. It's daring. It's shocking even. God wants us to understand exactly the depth of His affection, the greatness of His love, just as He wanted us to see in the first part of Hosea, the severity of our sin, the, the betrayal that it is, the sorrow that He feels as a result of our sin. So here He wants us to see the greatness of His affection. Just as we sang earlier, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. Before talking about that a little bit more, I mentioned last week that we do have to be careful, though, of how we interpret emotion, the emotion that God expresses here of Himself. It is clear God has emotion, right? He does feel, right? Many, many passages all throughout Scripture describe that. Genesis 6, 6 says, As He looked upon the sinfulness of man, that He was grieved in His heart. Judges 2.18 says God was moved to pity. Psalm 145.8 says that God is patient and compassionate. Deuteronomy 1.37 that He was angry. Zephaniah 3.17, He rejoices. And there's many more texts that talk about God's emotions and describe them. But we have to caution ourselves a little bit not to see God's emotions through the lens of our own. You see, God's affections are settled. Ours are not. He's not overcome or overwhelmed by passion, but we can be. He's not subject to moodiness, to irrational outbursts. God doesn't have to deal with hormones, doesn't have a hormone problem. He's not manipulated or surprised into emotional state that he doesn't desire to have. It's not like God's going along one day. He sees us do something. Oh, oh my goodness. What? And he frets about it and he's worked up about it. He's not surprised. He's not overtaken. But you know, in the last few decades, there appears to be a drift in the church towards seeing God as more like us, especially especially emotionally. That uh, He is subject emotionally to what we do. That He is experiencing life alongside of us. And that He reacts as we react. That His emotional state is dependent on, on us. But if that were the case, if God's emotions were dependent on our actions, if by our will or by our behavior we could distress Him, that would mean God can be changed. That would mean God is mutable. But James 1.17 says there's no variation or shifting shadow with God. Malachi 3.6 says, God says, I, the Lord, do not change. Even His own personal name communicates constants and unchanging unchangeableness immutability in exodus three fourteen, you remember what is it that he said to moses when moses asked who do i tell the people sent me and god tells him you say to the people i am sent you not i was or i will or i'm becoming but i am it communicates that god is unchangeable that he's eternally existent and faithful And this applies to his emotions as well. His feelings don't uh, change or fluctuate depending on what's going on around him. He's not passively floating along, waiting and reacting to what happens next. I like how Kevin DeYoung kind of summarizes this. He says, "Is is it fair to say God cannot suffer change in his emotional life? Can we really say God's inner life is immutable? Yes, in the sense that he has never passively acted upon. We do not move God to tears in the strict sense of the word. He is not overcome with rage. He does not fall in love. He does not get frustrated. Emotions do not just happen to him such that he is forced to act in a certain way in order to make himself happier or change his mood from bad to good. 
God is completely free. He makes decisions based on his own immutable will and unchangeable purposes, not changing emotional states. Okay, so what's the point? Why does this matter? And what does this have to do with Hosea? Well, Hosea has been used by more than one preacher or theologian over the years to portray a God who is subject to our emotions. A God who acts like a jilted lover and then like a hopeless romantic. His feelings of sorrow and affection in Hosea have been sensationalized by some to such a point that God is stripped of his transcendence, his otherness, his self-sufficiency. He's made to be interconnected, even relationally dependent upon us. But Acts 17.25 says that God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. You see, God didn't create us because he had an emotional need to be met. He's perfectly content within himself. He, he didn't fashion us and, and build us together so that filled some void that was within his heart. Let me ask you this. What would happen to the sun if every living creature became blind? Would the sun change at all? Would it diminish in its brightness? Would it cease to exist? It would continue on, would it not? In the same way, if everyone in the universe, if every living creature turned its back on God... He would not be changed at all. He would not cease to have a perfect peace and contentment within himself. Contentment that he had before we were all here. We do not add to his being, nor do we take away from it. You see, God doesn't learn new things because he knows everything. God doesn't need vitamins to keep up his energy, though many of us do. Right? His justice, His holiness, His power, His sovereignty, His knowledge, these don't grow, nor do they diminish. His love is not deficient. His anger is not excessive. His mercy isn't lacking. His patience isn't low. I mean, think about the alternative for a minute. What if God could change? What are the ramifications of that? Because to change means you either are improving in something or you are declining, Right? And if God could improve, that means he's not infinite to begin with. And if God could decline, that means he has the potential to become something less than he is now. The ramifications of this are enormous. If he changes in the least, he ceases to be almighty God. His attributes would not be infinite and there would be no guarantees. How could we trust in a God who changes? How could we have hope in a mutable God? But with all that, then one may ask, well, wait a minute, wait a second. How then are we to understand passages like we see in Hosea that communicate such emotion, that communicate, it seems, as God is reacting? Like Hosea 11.8, which says, My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. God's speaking those words. Or what about all those texts that talk about God changing his mind or God uh, having regret or God being provoked to anger? What do we do with those? How are we to understand them then? Well, the first thing we need to remember and recognize is that God is not just like us. He is infinite. We are not. And so as the scripture, as God seeks to communicate things about himself so that we can understand, he has to use language that will accommodate us. Psalm 145.3 says, Great is the Lord and highly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. That's a word that means you can't even calculate it. You can't figure it out. It's impossible to know. Isaiah 55.9, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Or Paul said in Romans 11.33, Oh, how the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. These verses describe God as incomprehensible, as unfathomable, as infinite. And again, so when we read passages that describe God's emotions, his actions, which seem like ours or which seem to change depending on what we do, we again need to remember these are accommodations to try to give us some understanding what is going on, some understanding of what can't be fully understood, the mind and heart of God. And there's, we see examples of this physically, right? God is spirit, right? The Bible talks about that in John 4. He's spirit. There's no physical body. But the other day I was reading in Proverbs 15.3 where it said, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. So what does that mean then? If God doesn't have literal physical eyes, 
What is that text saying? Or in Psalm 36, 7, which talks about taking refuge under the wings of God. But if he doesn't have wings, what does that mean? I think we understand those passages, don't we? That they're representing an activity that God doesn't have eyeballs, but, but he knows what's going on. He sees everything. Or that God doesn't have literal wings, but he is one that we can run and take refuge in like a chick running to its mother hen. We, we understand that, I think. We get that. And the same way to gain some understanding in the heart of God, the Bible also accommodates us with, communi- with expressions that communicate emotions we can understand. So when it appears God is changing emotionally, we have to remember, actually, it's we who are changing. And as we change, we become aware of a different aspect of God's character, of his emotions. For example, uh, you know what a prism does, right? When, you, when light hits a prism, it refracts and you see different colors. That's what a rainbow is. It's, it's light mo- refracting through the, the water. Well, is it the light that's changing? No, the light contains all those wavelengths within it as white light before it hits the prism. But when it hits the prism, we become aware of those other wavelengths and see the different colors. Or it's like a microscope. You know, if you were to look at a drop of water under a microscope, what would you see? Maybe you shouldn't do this. It's kind of scary. (laughs) Especially L.A. water. Well, a study was done. I don't know if I should tell you. A, a kid actually did a high school paper on... Uh, he, he looked at a fast food restaurant and he measured the bacterial content in the ice from the ice tray and the toilet water. Guess which had more bacteria? <laughs> so anyway, but if you, look on a, if you look at a drop of water in your hand, you won't see anything. Again, unless maybe L.A. water. But if you look under the microscope, you'll see lots of things. Now, is it the microscope that caused them to be there? Or is it just our perception is now different because of the microscope? Or like the sun, it appears that it's the thing moving, rising and setting in the sky, right? But actually, it's we who are moving. We are not the reference point. The sun is. God is not the one changing. We are. This doesn't mean, though, that God is without affection. (laughs) Rather much to the contrary. One theologian summarizes this well when he says, God's joy, his wrath... His sorrow, his pity, his compassion, his delight, his love, his hatred, and all the other divine affections epitomize the very perfection of all the heartfelt affections we know, albeit imperfectly as humans. His affections are absent the ebb and flow of changeableness that we experience with human emotions, but they are real and powerful feelings nonetheless. More to say on this, this topic is known as the doctrine of divine impassibility and if you're interested to look in it further i'll provide some links on our website that you can explore but it really helps us to to rightly view god's emotions for god does indeed have emotions and in hosea we see those emotions that god has profound grief over our sin and also though his profound love for our souls a love and affection A love so profound that one of the closest analogies that God provides to accommodate our understanding is the relationship, the emotional bond in in marriage. And the depth and intensity of that affection is seen no more clearly than in Hosea chapter 3. Let's look at that briefly. Hosea 3. James Montgomery Boyce called this chapter the greatest chapter in the Bible. Scholar Charles Feinberg said it rightfully takes its place among the greatest prophetic pronouncements in the whole revelation of God. Well, let's read chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. The story moves back to Hosea, where Hosea says, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I bought her for myself, Hosea says, for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Then I said to her, you shall not, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I will also be towards you for the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Now, it's interesting to note here, in this chapter, this is the first time that Hosea speaks in the first person. Up to this point, it's been in the third person. 
But here it becomes intensely personal. Because he says, the Lord said to me, and this is what I did. And while that first command God gave back in chapter 1 for Hosea to marry promiscuous woman must have been difficult, how much more so this one? Now some say the woman here that's being spoken of isn't Gomer, since we aren't given her name. But notice she's called an adulteress, indicating she's married, and God wouldn't be telling Hosea to get a married woman unless it was his own wife. And also, too, the analogy, the comparison here in the book of Hosea has been between God and Israel. And so this has to be the same person that he first married. God's command, love a woman who is loved by her husband, actually should read more literally, love a woman who is being loved by her companion. That word husband that was translated by the NAS is not normally, that word's not normally translated that way, but it's normally translated as friend, companion, lover, neighbor. So put yourself in Hosea's shoes here. His wife has run off countless times. He's now with another man. And, you know, with Gomer gone out of the home, I imagine peace and stability had probably come into that house. All of the issues related to her sin were gone. Perhaps even the pain of her betrayal had subsided a little. But then those wounds must have been reopened when he heard those words, go again and love your wife, basically. Verse 2 reveals this would be no simple instruction to carry out for Hosea had to do more than just go back and get her. He had to buy her back, as we see in verse 2. The reason for this isn't explicitly given here. She could have gotten herself into debt. And one of the ways in that culture that you could repay a debt was to become a servant or a slave of that individual and pay it off. She could have been working as a prostitute. And this was the required amount to purchase her from her employer. She could have, uh, this could have been just a payment that her lover had demanded to let her go. We aren't told explicitly for sure, but there have been a lot of impassioned sermons on this text about Gomer being on the auction block and being uh, worth nothing, all used up, worth only half the price of a common slave. But it isn't clear that Gomer was at an auction at all or that Homer had, to, Homer, <laughs> Hosea. I knew I was going to do that at one point on this <laughs> book. Hosea, not Homer. You know, we don't know what the going price was for slaves in those days. 700 years earlier, it had been set in Exodus as 30 shekels. Some say the barley, which was about 50 gallons, may have been worth 15 shekels. You know, a lot's been made made about the amount and focused on the amount. You know what I think is going on here? I think Hosea is simply saying, this is all I could scrape together to get her. I have 15 shekels of silver in my money box and I even had to go and get some barley and haul it with me because that's all I had to buy my wife back. You see, the amount is not so much the focus, I think, but it is that Hosea had to buy his own wife back. We don't have time to go through verses 3 to 5 in any detail. Um... Essentially, Hosea gives Gomer some restrictions here in bringing her back home to have no intimacy with anyone, even himself, for a time. And this was a consequence of her promiscuity and and meant as a symbol for Israel, who for a time would also have restrictions until God would restore her. We aren't told here what what Gomer, what happened. If they were restored, he brought her home. We aren't told how she responded to Hosea. We don't know if there was true restoration in their marriage. Again, Hosea here isn't the focus. God is. And again, the same question confronts us as what we talked about last week. Why? Okay, we understand why Hosea was told to marry her so that God could communicate, help us better understand the depth of grief and sorrow over our sin and that it is as an act of betrayal and unfaithfulness in his eyes. But why then does he tell Hosea to go again and love his wife? Why give him this instruction? Look again at verse 1. Go again, love a woman who is loved by her companion, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. See here, God is expressing the, the deep love and affection through Hosea's life. Notice in this verse how many times love is repeated. Four times. It's the word ahav. It communicates delight in, to like, to, to have an affection for, to desire. 
It's used for familial love as well. It's an emotional term of affection. And God is presenting here in verse 1 a stark contrast. The love of a husband contrasted with the love of an adulteress. The love of God contrasted with the love for idol worship. Raising cakes were uh, used for worshiping false gods. Uh, Perhaps in this case it's a reference to uh, when they would worship Baal during the harvest festivals and harvesting in the grapes. And they would have these raisin cakes with grapes in them as a, a way to celebrate. But notice here in verse 1, God is contrasting a pure devotion with a perverse disloyalty. God tells Hosea to love Gomer again because he wants us to understand his degree of love for us. Hosea, I want you to do this, to demonstrate that love to the point of carrying out this shameful and humiliating act to buy back your immoral wife, someone who has despised your love, someone who has refused your affection, who has rejected your kindness. And this, beloved, is an illustration of the love of God for us. I mean, going through this account, what was coming into your mind? Were you thinking of another action of a sinful people being purchased? I think the connection is obvious. Again, this is only a small picture. Gomer's sin against Hosea was no small matter indeed. But the degree of our sin is far worse against God. Because we have spurned, we've betrayed, we've been unfaithful not to another human, but to an infinite, eternal, loving, compassionate, merciful God, our Creator, the One who gives us life. Earlier in Hosea, we were made to see the magnitude of our sin. And the more we understand it, the more we will see how amazing God's love is. And again, as I'm picturing as Hosea was digging into his pocket or his little satchel for those 15 shekels of silver, can we not but help see a clear connection to someone else? For as we lived with our lovers and our sin... The Lord didn't reach His hands into His pocket, did He? He stretched them out. And He allowed a hammer to smash them in with a nail to a piece of wood. And then bleed out. See, our purchase price was not 15 pieces of silver and some animal feed. This is the precious blood of a spotless lamb. Our sin required the payment of a perfect life, a precious life, the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 4, 9 says, By the love of God, this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a propitiation for our sins. That is a passage of profound depth of the love of God. And Hosea's act was noble, hard even to imagine doing something like that. God's words of uh, tender words of betrothal to Israel were astonishing and amazing as we see them in Hosea. But there are no words to describe Jesus on the cross. There's nothing that we can say for Him redeeming a rebellious and unattractive humanity. So that any who could repent, who would repent and turn to Christ, will be saved by His blood. There are no words for that, beloved. No words to express. Capture what He did. You know, a man buying back his unfaithful wife is is the closest thing that we can get to have just a small idea of that. You know, and thinking about applying this, do I really need to spell out an application? Us thinking about and meditating on the love of God as expressed through Christ. Does it not move you to love Him? Does it not move you to be eternally grateful to Him? We sang earlier, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. Does not His indescribable love, should that not move you to love? Should not His forgiveness move you to forgive? Should not His compassion Move you to compassion. That's what God told Hosea. Hosea, love as the Lord loves. Colossians 3.12, similar message has been given to us. 
So as those chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you should forgive. And that begins with dwelling on His love. Before we sing in closing uh, from the hymn Amazing Love, um, I want to give us a moment, as we did last week, and just for you to reflect and express your gratitude. We did a little earlier this morning when we had communion together. But again, just we can't talk about God's love and then just kind of move on with the day. <laughs> Spend one more moment just reflecting on that and gratitude. And, and if you have not experienced that love, if you are not transformed and born again, this is the moment, this is the time to give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, to turn from your sin and put your faith in Him. So I'll give you a moment to pray together and then we will close our time singing Amazing Love. Lord, those words got it right that, uh, Lord, the ocean does not contain enough ink, if it were ink, to write your love. Uh, there is no scroll, no size of a scroll that, that could capture the infinite greatness of your love for us. And Lord, I, I just thank you. Thank you for the picture of our redemption is seen in Hosea. A picture of you buying us back. Buying us from sinful path we were on. A destruction. We were headed to hell. We are headed to an eternity without you. And we deserved to be sent there. And yet, Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. Becoming a man and sacrificing yourself to make a way to pay for those sins that we would be forgiven if we would but turn to you in faith. I pray, Lord, for any here, God, that is not born again, that you would, by your Spirit, open their eyes so that they may see the beauty and love in the cross. Lord, indeed, your love is amazing. Amazing love. In Jesus' name we pray and thank you. Amen.